I'm here with Martin Toha, who um, is the owner of voiceoverit.com. And Martin is going to talk with us about two things that he knows quite a lot about, and this is more of a, an information sharing for those that are interested. The first topic will be around project management and how he runs his team of 40 developers and, and, and various team members virtually. Um, and he's doing a pretty extreme case of, of it, and it seems to be working pretty well. And then the second is on call centers and how Martin works with those. So, um, Martin, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Adrian. Good to be here. So, um, do you want to? Can you tell us just like a, maybe in a, a very a quick summary about uh, what what the company you're working on does, and then we can kind of go into how then you're using project management to support that. Sure. Um, we're primarily in the consumer recurring billing business model right now. Uh, we we uh, run a small uh, voiceoverip voip.com uh, home phone service company, and we also have a what's known in the industry as a club membership company. Uh, we provide uh, membership products to consumers through an upsell channel. And uh, so we we basically have two main directions. Um, they're interwoven products, but uh, they uh, they both operate in the same business model, per se, recurring billing and, you know, uh, monthly fees. And is that, as you develop business models, you always look for just recurring billing? Is that your, your, your main... Name model. Um, right now, we're doing a lot of recurring billing. We also do, um, you know, we do recurring billing across different sales channels. But uh, we, we originally came from uh, software development, so our our main our core competency as a team is is really uh, software development, uh, database design, um, programming, and uh, and then we basically over the past two or three years kind of migrated from a widget provider to a widget provider and a service as well by picking up a few domain names and, and those uh, have kind of pushed us into these uh, these markets. So you actually you went into these markets because of the domain name? Yeah, originally what happened was with VoIP, our, our quick story there was about a year and a half ago or two years ago, we, we I, I picked up a, uh, a switch. I bought a telephony switch uh, as a uh, investment. Uh, I was going to lease it back to a friend of mine that owns a hosting company and a data center and co-location facility here in Boca Raton. And he said, buy the switch and I'll lease it from you. And I said, okay, well, that's great. You know, I just set it up. And so we uh, we had done that. We set the uh, the whole thing up in, in, uh, in New York and uh, plugged it all in and got it running. And, uh, of course, we're, uh, we're sitting here, a bunch of idle programmers, uh, finishing off our last project and, and kind of just in maintenance mode on that last, you know, software build out, which was a uh, order processing platform for e-commerce companies. And we said, well, we got a switch and we got uh, kind of the know-how of how this is all set up. And, you know, maybe we'd be interested in building a billing system or of sorts for, for the VoIP industry. And uh, so we started to dabble in it. And we said, oh, you know, we could probably uh, get into the home phone service game because that's where some volume is. You know, so all of these companies are signing up a couple million uh, committed customers every quarter uh, at that point uh, was just starting to get you know go from the two million VoIP users to eight million VoIP users during that year and uh, and so we said oh maybe we'll try it and then I ran across the the domain VoIP.com and uh, was able to pick that up once we were able to pick that up we we had, that was March of last year we had decided okay well you know we have all the pieces here and we got a domain name that's driving a couple hundred thousand type in traffic unique type in traffic users a month. Uh, we need to uh, we need to do everything we need to do to make this work. We need to do the SEO, the the uh, you know the the pay per click, and all the organic marketing that we can come up with, and build a efficient business model like we know how. We're typically the company that gets brought in to make a business that's running uh, more efficient, pull more people out of the equation, remove more steps in a process, um, and uh, and charge for that. So that's typically been our been our angle for e-commerce companies. We got into the VoIP space to do that um, and uh, thought it would be fairly simple, but uh, it took about a year to realize it was probably one of the most complicated process, uh, you know, so many different intense processes uh, involved in selling phone service that uh, it really just took us by the you know, it took us by surprise as a team, but we were able to pull through. And Is the hot pot, was the hot pot selling or was the hot pot running the service? Oh, the hard the hard part the first year was getting the all of the plates spinning at the same time. Um, there's there's so many moving parts 
because you're dealing with phone companies that are 100 years old. You're dealing with consumers that demand instant results for no money. Uh, you know, they want to pay for things like porting their number in, which often requires manual intervention, um, but they don't want to pay for it. So if you have a human being in the process, you can't make money. So that's one of those impossible equations where you either lose money providing the service, which we all can see SunRocket went out of business and they were funded with $80 million, and we have uh, followed their same customer sign-up projectile over the first uh, 18 months of our operation. They've done the same thing with their $80 million that they blew. We've done for... Uh, We've done organically with just our own money and our own time and effort. So we've we've done what they did with 80 million, and we did it in, you know, with nothing basically. And it's just a lot of details. Customer signs up, wants to port in a number, wants to cancel the other line, wants to add a second line, wants to call international, calls you back up again, says, oh, I need to cancel my first line, and you charge me too much for this international call. It didn't connect. Um, you need to do all that automatically and without cost, because if you have cost. For that call, you will go out of business because there's only a few dollars margin in each customer, and volume is the game, and you can't throw people at the problem because the more people you throw at the problem, it doesn't scale. You have to keep adding more and more people, and your costs go up, and you won't make any money. So that's the impossible equation of the home phone service. You're dealing with customers that aren't happy with phone companies who typically do a pretty good job, want to pay half the price, and get twice as much and aren't happy with the landline service they get now. So you have to provide better service, more features for less money, and you have to make money at the same time, which is a, a very hard equation to get into. Had I known that to begin with, I probably you know, would have, uh, would have said this was the worst business in the world. Now I know it's one of the worst businesses in the world from that perspective. The good side of the business is there's an available volume. You, know, you can sign up three, four, five million users if you want, and you'd be a drop in the bucket for the world. And is this is, uh, is this company is it your company? Is the sole owner? Yeah, I'm the owner. Of the, I'm the sole owner of the company. All right. Well, I know you wanted to talk about project management, so why don't we move on to that? Now, what's what's interesting in what you're doing is that you've got a team of 40 people, um, including a lot of software developers, and you, you're running the whole thing virtually. And you you've taken I think a pretty interesting thing you mentioned to me earlier is that um, you uh, have a place in France where you like to go and spend time and while you were over there, your partner had her baby. And you, you actually stayed over there for four or five months and didn't need to come back to the U.S. to be with the rest of your team because you had everything set up virtually. Yep. One of the, uh, one of the benefits that I've been able to uh, guarantee myself and, and all the people that, that work with us is that we can work remotely. That's one of the minimum requirements of this process that we set up for anyone. So if someone comes to work for us, we need to make sure they have two forms of Internet connectivity, a laptop computer, possibly even wireless set up for their you know, cellular card and so on. And everything we do has to revolve around the concept of we don't have a need or a use for physical location. So that's a big piece of overhead that you know is removed from our equation. We, like you said, employ uh, uh, over 10 programmers, which you know a lot of people know that's fairly simple. Um, we are... Uh, you know, heavily using development um, to remove people from from uh, business processes. That's our that's our real core competency. Um, we also have a uh, work from home call center set up. Uh, just to give you some round numbers on that, we used to outsource the call center to a uh, offshore center actually in the Dominican Republic, not far from you, or I guess far from you. I don't know, familiar with the areas over there. And uh, you know, our cost per hour there was twelve bucks an hour. But at the end of the day, the cost per minute was about 80 cents a minute. So it would be about what you would pay a customer service or a sales line here in the U.S. if with, you went with a major call center, Convergis or West or something like that. Uh, we were able to build the entire machine and wheel, so to speak, and bring it in-house, have people sign up online uh, to become an independent contractor with us. They actually interview through an automated voice interview process that we built, uh, we have someone that listens to that interview process every morning or interview, recorded interviews every morning and picks the people that uh, they want to hire from that list. They give them the uh, materials. Uh, they have to self-study, and then they go through a testing process. Once they go through the testing process, we put them on the phone, and we require them to go through weekly scheduled uh, trainings. And we basically then, once they're logged in, we pay them per minute. Uh, we pay them about 21, anywhere between 15 and 21 cents per minute for their talk time. 
and uh, they can schedule to work whenever they want, so they're independent contractors. We don't have to pay insurance or taxes. They love it because they can work uh, whatever hours they want. They get paid, you know, 200 to 500 bucks a week, depending on how many calls they take. And, uh, you know, we, we watch very closely their first call resolution ratios, their average handle times, their quality score, and arrive at a, uh, you know, a, a score for every, every user. It's very similar to a live ops setup. We, we built it in-house and we built it from the ground up. So now we're finally benefiting from that, uh, cost efficiency. Sunrocket, which was one of the, uh, most efficient models I've seen for customer service had about a $2.50 per customer per month cost for customer service. Ours is under a dollar uh, for the same, you know, same call quality and same uh, solution. Sunrocket was using, in many cases, like Vonage, uh, Philippines call centers and Dominican Republic and India call centers, and all of our reps are based in the U.S. Uh, you know, and so we we have that uh, we have that plus, and we're under half their cost. So, you know, there's a lot of things that took some investment initially and some pain. And, uh, you know, I can go through the process of how we set that all up and how painful it was. But, uh, you know, it, it basically uh, has finally started to pay off now. That may be a business there in itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, what was funny was we, uh, we originally had a call center in the Dominican Republic, and we basically forwarded all our calls to them, if you can imagine that. So we, we didn't have very many calls, and we just literally forwarded our line to them, and they took care of the calls. So we were basically getting reports from them later, you know, in, in the week or a week later based on, you know, certain things and kind of taking their word for what was working and what wasn't working and if we needed to add more people or subtract people and so on. Actually, never subtract. It seems to be just constantly adding. And uh, and what our service level is. And, you know, in the call center business, the service level is, you know, how, how long the average person has to wait on hold. So you, you want to watch your service level uh, ratios very carefully. And uh, and then, of course, you have your other three main metrics, which a lot of our developers have, have taught me, which are your first call resolution, which is the ratio of calls that get solved and don't call back within a certain period of time. So you can take all your caller IDs in a database table very simply and say, okay, we got a 1,000 calls today. What percentage of those people called back in the next 72 hours? And you want to make sure that ratio is as low as possible. Then you have your average handle time, which is the amount of time that the rep spent on the phone with the person on average. And the two of those figures kind of offset each other. So you want a very good first call resolution, but you don't want a very high average handle time. Because obviously I can hang up on everybody, and I can have an average channel time of one second, but a lot of people are going to call back. And I can spend three hours on the phone with each person, and literally nobody's going to call back, but then I have to spend a fortune to solve problems. So between the two uh, metrics, you can come up with a cost efficiency ratio per rep per queue. So you can determine, okay, well, these reps are costing me, uh, you know, this much money because 30% of their calls call back, but this one over here is 60% callback ratio. You know, so you can base your, you can come up with a metric. The third metric that's of relevance is, uh, is your quality score, which is when you basically listen to, a human being would listen to a call and, you know, go through a list of 20 known things. You know, was the call answered properly? Was the call, you know, did the, did the problem get answered? Was the, was the rep courteous to the customer? Was the, was the, was there any background noise in the call and things like that? And you just go through in a very cold process, listen to the call and, uh, you know, come up with a score, basically. And then that score, those three things, the first call resolution, average channel time, and quality score, create a report card for your rep. And you can know immediately, fairly quickly, how useful your rep is. You can say, you know, uh, this this rep is awesome, 80% first call resolution, seven-minute average channel time, or six, whatever your goals are, and the quality score is 80%. Great. Follow that model, take what they're doing, and apply it to other members. And so we needed this system. We had no system that did that. And so a couple of the people that worked with us, uh, a couple of the programmers that worked for us, also came from the call center industry. And they said, this is what we need. You know, and this is going to cost probably half a million bucks if we go to an Avaya, uh, or a million dollars if we go to an Avaya. And I shopped it around. I uh, found um, our soft switch provider, the company, the, the switch that I bought actually had a plug-in for, for call center, and it was about $100,000. So I said, okay, let me do the 30-day trial on it because I happen to have that. And I said, 100 grand's worth every penny if it can do all these things. And I uh, bought it, and it didn't do anything that we needed. So... 
at the end of the day, we, of course, were looking at each other and said, well, we're going to build it. So we started with the... Uh, with the naive notion that we were going to build this solution and use it to manage outsourced call centers. So we were going to build a software that in real time watched every call and tracked every call and created this real-time system where we can see you know, effectively what everything was going on with each of our businesses because we have two main business segments. One is Profinity and one is VoIP.com that actually receive customer service calls. And those two main business, the Profinity more than VoIP actually needs to maintain a certain level of service because it's dealing with a lot of billing. And you need to have a certain guaranteed level of service that you can actually can control very effectively. Uh, so we, we basically said, okay, let's just do it. So we built the database uh, fairly quickly. Uh, and the first completed the system, I would say, in about a 30-day time period from zero to, you know, 60 to 70 percent of what we have today and built it exactly how we wanted it so we have you know dashboards where we can see in real time what reps are logged in how long they've been logged in for what their current status is um, then start to drill down and find uh, find out what uh, what their past history has been and so on and so forth and uh, put that in place using our existing call center the funny thing is the second we put that in place where we can actually see in real time what reps were doing our efficiency reports that came from our outsourced call centers went up 80%. So as soon as the rep and the call center knew that we knew what they were doing, the world changed. And it went from horrible to bad, and, uh, and based on our current, our current metrics that we look at today. And, uh, and we were able to quickly see you know, how long people were in queue for and, and you know, reps that were logged in sitting there not taking calls and so on and so forth, and we're able to really come back and say, wow, you know, we're paying a lot of money for people to not be effective. And so we said, you know what, let's become a call center. And so that was the uh, month after. And we said, how are we going to get reps? So we said, okay, well, that's fairly simple. We don't want to spend any money because that's a waste of money and uh, to advertise. But how do we get reps? So we, we said, okay, well, let's run a couple of Craigslist ads. So we ran some Craigslist ads because that's worked for our sales department in the past. And uh, we... We put up a couple of ads in different cities where we knew call centers were, you know, 10,000 seat call centers and so on. And we said, look, we're going to, we're willing to pay uh, 20 cents a talk minute, which if you talk, you know, a good 50% of an hour could be about 10 bucks an hour. You can work from home, you can make 10 bucks an hour, and you're currently working at an office and you're making seven bucks an hour and you have to pay for clothes, gas, and wake up every morning and deal with everybody in person. This is a little bit of a different scenario. And, uh, and basically, what do they actually make per hour um, at the end of the day? Well, a lot of it depends on when they work um, and how much they work, uh, because what what different queues are working in different a couple different ways. We have certain people that we depend on, like in technical support, we have to depend on certain people to be answering 100% of their calls. Sometimes we overstaff on customer service or billing because if we have three or four people working and uh, one of them is uh, working for us. Uh, you know, 80% of the time, and that's the other thing to mention is that there is a whole community of these people that work these work-at-home jobs, and they also have other companies they work for, not just us. And so a lot of them will work for maybe a couple of other people, like they'll take calls for us at night for six hours, and they'll take calls, uh, you know, for other people. And, and to answer your question, if a, if a person, that's what I was kind of getting to, if a person's working at 20 to 22 cents a minute, and they're 60 minutes in an hour, what is that, 13 $13 an hour, but they're not going to work a full hour, so they're going to work probably 40 to 60 percent of, or let's say 45 to 65 percent of the hour, so they can make about eight to ten bucks an hour uh, working from home. And that's a that's what a call center rep would, and they're they're coming from a call center where they're getting paid 650 an hour, so it's a raise of you know a few bucks an hour, and we're dealing with this sort of uh, person. So when you compare that to your outsourced call center, even the most inexpensive outsourced call center in the U.S. is $29 an hour. Uh, the, the next level down would be your uh, India call center, and uh, that will go for typically 15 to 18 maybe $20 an hour. Then you have your Philippines call centers that go from 12 to 15 per hour. And then you have your smaller call centers that are like in the islands and things like that that go for 10 to $12 an hour. So to give you an idea, we're getting, you know, what you would typically pay $29 an hour to 
for about what is the equivalent of about eight to nine dollars an hour, fully loaded with managers and everything. Because if you staff one hour at a call center, you have to pay for that hour whether you have calls or not. It's not per talk hour, it's per hour, per staffed hour. So if you only talk for 40% of that hour, if your, util- if your agent utilization ratio is only 40%, then your real cost is $30 divided by 40%, which is a much larger number. So your talk time you know, could be could be $1.50 a minute easily. So we, we basically uh, decided that uh, because of our businesses that we were in, we needed to look at customer service as a, a part of the business that we needed to remove all the costs we could from, make it most efficient as possible, um, and which is what I was about to get into on the hiring, which I always think is pretty cool. Uh, someone came to us and said, you know, this is, this is the way to do it. You, you basically run an ad in Craigslist with a phone number, with a local number in the, you know, whatever city you're doing. And obviously we're a VoIP company, so we can get local numbers anywhere. And the person will call in. And the person calls in and says, hey, this is... Uh, this is VoIP.com, um, and guess what? You can start working in a few days. All you have to do is go through this automated interview process, press 1 to continue. They press 1, and immediately after that, we start asking them questions. What's your name? And an all-recorded process. Uh, what's your past work experience? What would you do in this scenario? Imagine hearing this call. What would you say after this? And we basically do a 5- to 25-minute recording of all the things that you'd want. Now, if you can imagine... 50 people a day were applying. So you would need, if you were a normal company doing interviews, you'd need a lot of people to sit and call these people back and interview them over the phone and come up with some ratio of you know, cost to hire a person. Well, when you record these interviews, which I always thought was the coolest thing that we did, um, you can have a person go through 25 to 50 recordings in 20 minutes because very quickly you can listen to someone over the phone talk and know if you like them or not very quickly. Uh, you can tell almost immediately if they care about the customer, if they're going to be the type of person that you want to have on your team, uh, and so on. And uh, and you, you basically have it all there. You, you have the whole recording, and you had nobody wasting time to get that material. And you paid nothing to get it as well, because we ran ads in Craigslist. So we can hire anywhere we want and uh, get as many people as we want. We ran a monster ad, and we got about a 1,000 recordings. So for $500, we got a 1,000 about a thousand, if I remember correctly, it's been a few months. I apologize, but it's about a thousand. It was over. It was over several hundred, but it was like around a thousand recorded interviews. Craigslist would produce maybe five to ten recorded interviews per day for free. So it depends on you know how bad you need a lot of people, and uh, and then you can go through that and you know basically hire uh, the top twenty to thirty percent of the people that you want. You, you know, then you need to make sure you bring them into a good, stable, solid process, which is what we absolutely did not have when we started. We thought, hey, these people are kind of smart. We know VoIP, so therefore must, everybody must know what VoIP is, and let's just throw them on the phone and see what happens. And, uh, you know, when, in a week, they'll figure out all their problems. And, uh, what, what actually is the case is, is the opposite. You know, what happens is that you want someone, uh, when you hire for this sort of industry, uh, or I guess any similar business that knows nothing and is willing to learn and take your your way of approaching a problem. So if you want to hire someone for computer technical support, you know, someone like me would say, okay, well, let's get someone with credentials that knows what a computer is. But actually what you want is you want someone who doesn't have a computer, doesn't know what a computer is, and doesn't know anyone that has a computer. Because what happens is if you take that person and you train them for a week on every single possible call that they could possibly get, they'll do and solve your problems the way that you want them to solve your problems, which is that one piece of information is two months of my life that I'll never get back. Because I was sure that the way to hire was based on experience. But in fact, it's the opposite, because people that have experience will tend to solve problems their way no matter what you tell them. And uh, we're dealing with $8 an hour employees, or rather independent contractors, so they're, you know, they're going to go at it their way. And, uh, and so that was, that was a big step. So by removing the uh, outsourced calls... How many calls, you have working for you? Um, at, we were, at one point, what happened was is that we, and this is why it was kind of a, an emergency, at one point we had as many as 150, um, and we were able to ramp from zero to 150 in three weeks. Uh, so now we're at about 
20 full-time equivalents or about 50, 50 people, I would say, maybe between 30 and 50 people at any given week, um, you know, get a get an automatic pay, paycheck from us through our ACH system. And so they, I mean, these are people that are working for you. They don't even, they wouldn't even know your name, would they? Nope. So you have no relationship with them. You just set the systems up in place to manage them. And do they, do they have, I mean, you, you say they go through training and stuff. Do they actually have contact with people for their training, or is that all? Oh yeah, absolutely. We use uh, and that. That kind of gets into the what we learned um, from uh, from doing this, is that for every X number of people working from home, you need to have a team leader. And the team leader can be someone that simply says, hey, I'm here for you. If you need anything, something's not right, you don't understand something, I'm here for you. And, you know, it's kind of like that use, utilization ratio where, you know, in theory, you should be able to get, uh, you know, one in one, out of every ten, just to give you round numbers, out of every ten reps, you can have one team leader, let's say. And the team leader can handle things like payroll, mistakes, uh, questions about a call, I don't understand. Someone's telling me something. What does this mean? Where do I ask this question? Where is, when's the next training? That one person will remove a lot of your problems because what happens is when we started, we hired 150 people and we had zero team leaders. We had a few managers and we said, well, this is great. We can really scale this effectively now because not only are we only paying 15 to 20 cents a talk minute, we have no managerial cost. But uh, actually what we found was that most of the effectiveness of this sort of person, which is unlike the other business model or other business unit we have, which is development, which the more management you have in development, the, the less efficient your developer is. Uh, this is the opposite. You need good support, and you need to make sure that they're happy and supported, because if they're happy and supported, they will effectively be happy and support you as well. Uh, they don't mind being bugged. They don't mind being, you know, held up because their entire uh, cycle of project is seven minutes. So they start and stop their whole job in seven minutes, if you think about it. Whereas a developer may need five days to solve a math problem or a query or you know three hours or whatever. And if you keep interrupting them, you restart the clock each time. So you know this is one of those things where you don't lose a lot of efficiency by having good support. So. You know, by having connectivity, things like Skype, obviously, uh, we use a forum. Um, a public forum is very effective, probably one of the things that we learned, because we had a lot of reps that said, well, you know, I talked to my team leader, I talked to my manager about a payroll issue, and you guys didn't take care of it, and I've been telling them every day, and, and no one's been taking care of it. And, you know, now I'm upset, and now I'm going to stop working, or I'm, I'm going to threaten you guys, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. And these are, And this is stuff over 50 bucks, you know, things that, you know, you would never think twice about, but small little details like that can create problems. So we created a simple public forum where all the reps can log in, and if they can't solve their problem one-on-one, -on -one, they can post it up on the forum, and then other people will watch it. And there'll be kind of, you know, several safety nets in place. Um, things like automated payroll, where the rep can see their call log and how much they're going to get paid, how much they were paid, how much the balance is, agree to the payment before we send it out, things like that. And stability and support and all these things put together create an effective call center. And I, I've gone through this over the past, from, you know, it was July, August, and September, and by October we've been running fairly effectively. Um, so the first three months were basically build the software, you know, go to hell and back and, you know, build a hiring and, and hire people and, and, and run the system effectively and learn the model. Those three months is basically what it took us to do it. And, uh, you know, effectively, you have different business units. So you have technical support, customer service, billing, sales, uh, you know, things like that. And, and there's, there's many techniques here to, to do this. But the thing to remember is that we don't have an office. So our cost per customer and our cost per call is is half of that of a Indian call center or a Philippines call center, and we're using Americans. We're using people that are local. Compared to LiveOps, which is a company in this space doing doing the kind of stuff you're doing, you, LiveOps you, LiveOps is excellent. I if I knew about LiveOps, um, and I was able to effectively get going with LiveOps, I probably would have tried something like that, but. In essence, we are running a live ops. In essence, we are running a live ops with our own type of reporting and our own type of solutions and probably, 
you know, in a way where it's almost better for us now. So we lost two or three months, uh, you know, and, and of course before that, for the first nine months, we went hopping from call center to call center to call center. And we tried Canada, we tried India, we tried the Philippines, we tried the Dominican Republic, we even tried, uh, you know, Florida, and uh, and it was just a, you know, a whole learning process. So we we went through all that. So we were kind of like, we're not going to put this in someone else's hands per se. Live ops probably would have been a solution for us. Before you go on to that, um, going through all of those different countries, I mean, I, I just was calling HSBC today, and um, I'm, I'm really unimpressed with their support. And, and then naturally, um, after I got someone with an accent on the phone, I asked where they're from, and they're from the Philippines. And the, the support was very mediocre, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm probably going to move thanks as a result. Um, what are your experiences with these different countries? How do, how do the costs back up in all of the, these different countries? both for support and then for selling roles. We started with uh, Canada for the following reasons. We uh, we didn't want to have an accent, and we wanted to save some money. So we started with Canada. In Canada, you're looking at about 60 to 70 cents per talk minute if you wanted to do a talk minute uh, ratio. In Canada, you have uh, some fairly nice, happy people. You have a fairly decent, clear accent, and you have people that are near America enough so that if you have a question that you don't understand, their empathy is going to say, okay, because a lot of customer service is not solving problems. It's sounding like you can solve the problem uh, because most problems aren't, you know, so obviously if the customer could solve the problem himself, he probably would have. So a lot of it's like not necessarily giving the answer but saying, okay, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to go get it for you. And that one thing is what you can't find often in an offshore call center. So Canada's Canada is exactly what I what, what I just said, where it's basically near shore, fairly good quality, decent pricing. Not U.S. pricing, but decent pricing. Not in other words, not 10% more like U.S. pricing, but it's it's fairly the similar product. In the U.S., you get $29 per talk hour or per hour per uh, staffed hour, or about 85 cents per talk minute. You're looking at uh, you know uh, lead time of 30 to 60 days setup. Um, which is another deci- deciding decision factor for us is that we're we're very very gun you know uh, we 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 just jump right into things and try to move move quickly and, and solve problems so we didn't want to wait 30 to 60 days but uh, basically uh, you know you're going to have to set up the call center you're going to have to staff it you're going to have to pay top dollar but you will get top service um, you know basically based on the call center they will give you what you are paying for. Um, you, you're going to have to be able to make your business work. Unfortunately, we're in a business where we can't afford to pay four times what we're paying now for customer service because that would eat half of our profit. So customer service, wasn't that wasn't an option for us, so we didn't really push on it too hard. If you go to India, you have, um, of course, the, the typical Indian accent, which turns off a couple of uh, percentage points of the people out there. Um, they are somewhat of a problem-solving type of uh, community. They will, you know, try to solve issues. Um, I would say not, you know, not anywhere near as uh, compatible as the U.S. Uh, reps would, but uh, they they have some of that. But again, you're now talking about maybe 50. I forget what the uh, how that works out to talk minute, but it's like about 15 bucks to 20 bucks per hour for that sort of center. Um, you have a a person that doesn't necessarily understand business as much as, you know, just someone locally here would understand how a business operates or the needs of a person or if someone's upset or not. So you kind of lose that. It's hard to explain, but you kind of lose that interaction that, you know, would make someone feel comfortable. The Philippines is, seems to be where a lot of people are headed. Uh, Philippines is a fairly decent accent, so you don't have a lot of the problems in India where you have people that can't understand English very well. So you have, um, I'd say, 80%, uh, you know, English accent. Not a, you know, not a perfect situation, but far better than uh, than anywhere else. Uh, you then have, um, uh, you know, some cost savings over India. So your your cost per talk hour maybe or per staffed hour maybe only about 12 to 15 bucks. Um, the problem with Philippines is it's a double-edged sword. What I found with the Philippines is it's much like what you can imagine your typical Asian um, situation where you tell them exactly what you want them to say, and they will say exactly that. Not anything less and not anything more. So what you are hearing them say is exactly what they've been trained to say, which is 
a double-edged sword. Probably when you called, you know, or often when you call, you're going to hear a certain accent. You know, I can, I can, I know it now because I've been doing this for a while, and, and it's, you know, it's Philippines. A lot of the companies use Philippines now, and the problem with us was that, again, money drove the decision, but for the quality, it wasn't that much uh, worse off than. Uh, our, the quality wasn't that much better than India, but it was uh, it was effectively more better than. So in other words, between India and Philippines, obviously, it choose Philippines. But the problem was is that you lose a people go into the call with the attitude of this guy doesn't understand me, and actually during the call he probably does understand you, but he doesn't portray that. He doesn't explain it in a way that people you know, like your next door neighbor would understand you, even if he was from the Philippines. <laughs> so there's certain there's certain locality that, that is lost there. So that that is very effective for billing. Uh, you know, sir, this is your bill. This is why you got billed this and this is this is the situation. Now if you don't like it for billing, I actually personally like it for sales. Uh, because you don't have to worry about your salesperson here in the US telling them anything they want to hear to get signed up. They'll tell them exactly what it is that they're allowed to tell them and, and whatnot. So you kind of have to look at it as a know what it is going into it. And uh, and obviously I'm not an expert. I haven't run a Philippines call center, but I've definitely outsourced there, and I've definitely outsourced in several other places, and currently actually outsource some sales to the Philippines, and uh, and they work effectively. So Dominican Republic, uh, we outsourced uh, to uh, to Dominican Republic. You have uh, some Spanish. Uh, uh, bilingual benefit there, so you can speak. Uh, you know, you can you basically be immediately bilingual. Of you know, obviously all the all the other call centers are bilingual as well. But most most companies we're talking to aren't really selling anything in the Philippines or in India. But uh, you know, for us in America, often people will speak Spanish, so you have some percentage benefit there. Um, the the problem with uh, the Dominican Republic that we found is that it is exactly that is an island. And anyone that's been to or lived on an island knows that an island has its own pace and uh, and, and work ethic. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to get someone that, you know, wants to move at a certain pace to move at the pace that you want them to. That's one of those things that you really can't train. And uh, so over time, it just, it just wears out. So we had an issue of, you know, low efficiency, um, a lot of reps not working or, you know, kind of thinking they knew better uh, in the Dominican Republic. So, and again, the cost benefit there was about a couple of dollars less than the Philippines. So we're talking about 11 to $13 an hour per per staffed hour in the, in the Dominican Republic. I've had great experiences in all the places, and I've had horrible experience in all the places, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, technology. Um, are you watching what's going on in real time? Do you effectively know what's going on? Um, when I first started, I uh, was outsourcing, like I mentioned, and I had no idea. I would get my feel uh, of whether or not I was doing a good job based on random things I would hear. So if I heard, okay, a friend of mine called our call center and the guy was helpful, I think, wow, you know, we we did great. We have a great call center. And then I would hear one other person calling and they'd tell me, oh, you know, this guy couldn't help me, and I would say, oh, well, maybe it's because the system was broken or whatever. So I would I would basically base my emotional level of uh, security on these call centers based on random things. But once we put the technology in place and we were able to watch now not just to the call center but down to the rep, we were able to fire 40% of our reps within a week. And we were able to say, you guys aren't cutting it because we knew that if they took a call, three-quarters of the people they talked to would call back. So immediately you know that those people aren't going to work out for you. And that's mostly a problem on our end. We didn't train them properly. We didn't bring them in properly. But it's almost a situation where it's too late because it would take us so long to untrain them and retrain them and try to make and, and, and mend the bridge than it is to say, go, you know, go, go find somewhere where it's more applicable to you. And we got 50, you know, 50 or 100 new applications coming in every day. So it was, uh, wasn't so much of a, of a complication there. But, you know, back again towards looking so at the... Say, uh, um Let's say you've got to you've got to pick locations. You've got um, you've got to do a team. You've got to have a call center for service, a customer service, and a call center for sales. Would based on my conversations with you, would that mean that um, your your customer service you do in a US team based on this uh, pay per minute system you set up, and then for your sales, would you put that in the Philippines? 
there's there's three metrics that you there's three business things that when you just mentioned that that I'm thinking of in my head. One is obviously what is it that you're selling. If you're selling something that's um, fairly simple, uh, you know, uh, sign up for uh, you know, Floby, you know, cut, you know <laughs> what's your credit card number and address. Uh, Philippines will be great for that. Um, you know, most of the calls, however, are going into a uh, you know U.S. call center anyways through direct response. But the point is, is that it really matters what you're selling. For example, VoIP is very hard to sell. Uh, it's very complicated. Home phone service, as simple as it is, we all use it. It's very, very complicated to sell to someone who doesn't know what it is. So to give that to someone in India to sell to an American, it's very hard. Um, in fact, it was even the opposite uh, is true. We have a lot of customers from India, and the most effective call centers we have were, that were selling it were in India. So a lot of the sales depends on the complexity and the length of you know the length of call and the sales cycle time. So if it's a fairly simple thing and they can just read it off and get it done, and it's more of a mechanical thing, then yeah, I would say I would go with your least cost. Um, the second the second topic that I'm thinking of when you just mentioned is cost. Cost is a very important metric. If you need to care about your cost, then there's certain things that force your hand. You can't if you can't afford to pay a U.S. call center, then you just you can't afford it. Um, you know, there's certain things that uh, are the way they are. And what a lot of companies do on customer service is they say, "Hmm, I already got the customer. I don't care anymore about getting the customer because I already got them. So customer service is a cost. It's not a." Commission, it's not a way of bringing in business. So that a lot of companies go, well, let's just, you know, I got two options here. I got a quote from company A in the U.S. for $29 an hour, and I got a quote from a company in the Philippines for $19 an hour. You know, they look at those two quotes, and someone in the executive team goes, well, I'm going to get a raise this year because I just saved the company a hundred grand a month. And they don't realize that you're not really effectively building you know, it depends on your customer base. Like you, like the first thing you told me is, I'm going to probably move my business. That's a very common reaction. Uh, Americans, American and you know Western Western types will say, you know what, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. And the funny thing about that is that that's not how a lot of all the all their cultures work. They they don't have that reaction, and because that's what Americans feel like we have control over, so we're going to use leverage to get what we want. And so if you have if you have that uh, that you know cost uh, factor, if you have to decide based on cost, you have to think very carefully because if you are looking at Philippines versus U.S. and your customer base is recurring, then you have to be very careful on that because you may erode a lot more customers than you thought you would have by saving that extra money. Now, that still may work out in your favor, but you still have to look at that. So. A lot of it's based on what you're selling. If you're selling a product that you sell one time, like an infomercial, and you need customer service on the billing, and you really don't care, you know what? You just want the job done, so to speak. That's that would be, if, you know, just looking at that at face value, I would say, okay, probably cost savings would be a good avenue. If you're looking at a recurring billing product where you want to keep your customers and you want to keep them happy, then you know you want to make sure you get what you need, and you get, and you don't look at it as just necessarily a cost. So, you know, what, what, what we've done is we've effectively built an offshore call center and cost base, but based it in the U.S., and much like LiveOps is doing. Let me ask you a couple of questions from um, one of my call center clients. Um, and I don't know whether these are questions you can answer, but I'll just, I'll just ask because I've got three questions here, and if you can answer them, then, then please do, or just any insight you have. Um, the first question is, when I run two shifts on an outbound sales process, the morning shift seems to get more sales, even though the night shift has more customer contacts. I have heard many reports from other small centers that it is very difficult to get more than one productive shift going in a day, and I've also heard that many successful call centers have decided to only work one shift. How do you see it? You know, when I think, when I hear that question, and i just give you a, a two-minute story here. I always, Bell South, for example, used to be open Monday through Friday. And I always think to myself, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., what's the deal with that? This is a multi-billion dollar company. Why aren't they open Saturday and Sunday? And, you know, we originally had the concept of, you know, we're an Internet company. We need to be open 24 hours a day, so on and so forth. The same funny thing happens in customer service. Um, on Sundays, your first call resolution, which is the ratio of people that call back, plummets. Uh, you go from a 70% first call resolution on a Monday 
to a 40% first call resolution on a Sunday. So effectively on Sunday, people that are calling in are calling in with the mindset of calling back in. And so it's kind of like I'm not necessarily sure it's really a fault of the call center because it's the same people. It could be somewhat relevant because the call center rep may be saying things like call back tomorrow uh, when, you know, when, uh, when so-and-so is in or whatever, but we close Sundays because we effectively realized that our effectiveness on Sundays was below our acceptable level, and we'd rather not take the call. We'd rather not piss off 60% of the people and just let them know call back on Monday. And, you know, everyone else is open 24 hours a day and seven days a week, and, you know, what we did was we used the forum. So on the sales side, I could imagine it's probably similar things. There's probably people are more apt to making a decision uh, and they have a clearer mind at certain times during the day, so they're able to make a buying decision at certain times. So, I, you know, it's it's just predictability. It's just like the internet. There's and, and human behavior. There's always a certain predictability to it. And uh, I'm not sure there's an answer to it per se, but it is what it is. So, okay. Um, so the next question is: Many of my best sales agents seem to produce very well for between six and twelve months, after which they more or less burn out and become bored and ineffective, rather than seasoned and experienced. Is there a way to save these people, or is it better to just let them go and get someone fresh on the sales floor? The number one uh, reason for people to leave the call center business, which has a extremely high level of churn, probably the highest that I've effectively known in any large industry, is because they have lack of uh, ability to improve their job or, or move up in their position, and that's the number one reason they quit. They're not taking the job because it's what they've gone to school for and they, you know, thought that's what they wanted to do since they were seven years old. So, you know, effectively, you you do lose some of that effectiveness. Now, you know, you get into some of us, that's more of a psychology question than, than anything. In my experience, you know, basically, you know, you're going to have to go with the cycle. That's what everyone else does. The big call centers have no other better solution either. So there's not like this secret sauce that they have out there where they're able to keep reps for eight years uh, and so on. Uh, that's one of the things that Canada seems to press is that, look, you know, we, we live in small towns. We take care of our reps and pay them well, and they stay longer. But then there's um, companies like, uh, and I forget, it's not Newegg, but the other one uh, down in Arizona over there, the average sales rep lasts 45 days. So, you know, you kind of got to go with, I'm the kind of person that says, this is the effective model. Let's go with it. These are the things that we probably could change if we, you know, really beat it with a bat. But let's not change it. Let's take what we know and, and, and work within that realm and make it more effective. If you need to hire more people, if you need to train them better, if you need to train them faster, you can do things like automated hiring or, or certain training mechanisms or so on and so forth that get your reps to a higher peak level. Uh, you can move them from department to department, but then you're talking about more of a psychological thing, and I'm, I'm not an expert there, so I don't want to speak to something I don't know. But, you know, there's, so there's probably... Your, your mode is just, uh, you'll just, you'll just uh, burn it, turn and burn. Yeah, I mean, basically, if you know that your average rep's going to last 45 days and you've tried everything to fix that problem, or if your average rep's lasting, I mean, six to eight months, is, six to 12 months, is a, that's a long time. Um, that's, you know, it's all relative, right? So, uh, you know, six to eight months is, is, is effectively a, a long time in a, for a call center rep to have a single job. So, uh, yeah, my, my point of view would be to remove more of the costs and know that metric going in and work with that metric. Keeping a rep longer isn't any better than having two reps for, for six to eight months, as long as your cost to get the other next rep is, is, uh, you know, is not too, is not too large. Okay. Then my third question is, um, is, are, are people out there successfully cold calling or are they mainly working with, uh, targeted qualified leads for, for call center sales? Oh, there's a giant, there's a giant industry of cold calling. Um, it just depends on the product. There's a company. Uh, there's there's companies. This and I'm from South Florida, so this is the uh, cold calling capital of the of the world. So there's 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 a for, uh, uh, depending on the product. There's like a bunch of uh, business to business sort of cold calling that goes on. Um, cold calling now per se is is it's taken a big hit because of the uh, the DNC, of course, in the past several years. But the um, you know, the, at the end of the day, there's definitely a, an industry of cold calling out there. What kind of products uh, do best in cold calling? 
um, larger larger ticket items like um, for example reverse mortgage uh, you know and, and I guess you, you you know it's kind of like what's your definition of cold calling if you have a list of people that are uh, you know doing you have a mortgage is that a, is that cold calling I, I don't really know if, uh, depending on your definition but uh, basically well, you know lead, because it, 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 cold calling means anyone that's on the DNC which has got to be a small listener uh, the DNC is about sixty percent of the U.S. 60, 70%. So it depends, and it depends on your list, obviously. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's ineffective to just randomly, if you're talking about starting with 000, you know, 00001 and starting to go to two and then, you know, just start dialing every number you can think of, that, that is done primarily through voice broadcasting because that's really the only efficient way left. Um, but if you have, um, you know, if you have a team of people that they can get a, uh, uh, you know what I would uh, to me cold calling is anyone that's not ready to receive your call. So, uh, you know, if you have a list of people that are in your town and they just bought a house, and you're trying to, you know, or rather they want to put their house for for sale, and they're you're calling them to get the listing, that's cold calling, and that that's effective still. To me, to me, that's coming from a list. So that's I guess yeah. I think we're on the same page. Yep. yep. So um. Is there anything we should add in about um, call centers, or can we uh, should, can we move on to project management? Um, no, we can. There's there's all. I mean, we can talk for for days on this, but I think that we covered a lot of it. Um, I can tell you that uh, it's something that you have to be committed to doing uh, if you want to bring your call center in house. We we effectively save about a hundred grand a month and provide, I would say, double the quality of service than we were when we outsourced. Um, still not the service and that we want to. Advantage in your business. We have an extreme long-term advantage now because our cost variable is far lower. So now we can we can effectively pay more for customers. So yeah, that's it, it depends on your business. I mean, a lot of these, like for example, for example, the companies that build direct response companies, advertise products on TV, they're really uninterested in that mechanic because if they can save fifty cents a sale by doing it themselves or a dollar a sale, it's it's really not effective for them to bother, so they all just outsource it to West and negotiate the best price. So, you know, there there's certain there's certain needs. We we happen to be stuck in the wrong bucket where we were required to be in the call center business in order to run most effectively. Right, okay. All right, so um let's talk about project management. Now you use um oh and I've forgotten the name of the the site. Um what's the name of the site you use for project management? Sorry, you cut out there for a second. I, can you repeat the first first part of that? Uh, for project management, there's a site that you use, and I forgot the name of the the name of the site that you used for managing your management. Oh, actually, we we built our own software. Um, we the one that I always talk about is uh, is our is our quote unquote ticket system. That's a homegrown solution that we wrote. Um, a lot of companies either use Remember the Milk or Basecamp. Uh, from 37 signals. So those those other two softwares are the the de facto web-based project management solutions out there. We we currently use a system that we built five years ago that we've not changed, and we found simple works and and we stuck with it. In essence, we have a mesh of users. We have about 20, maybe 20. I'd say about 20 users that log into this ticket system. And they can create tasks between each other, and it's very simple. You can put a subject and a body, and you can attach a file if you want to, and you create a ticket, and you assign it to somebody. You, as a ticket owner, uh, create this request, and the person that receives it has to complete it or has to pass it back to the original person. So the person that receives it says, okay, I got it. I'm going, I'm going to work on it and puts it in progress. And... That one little function there kind of reduces a lot of runaround. So, in other words, if I ask you to do something, you can't. If I email you something and say I need you to do this, and I see you for lunch the next day, you can't come to me and say, "Well, I asked someone else about this and talk to them," because I gave you a ticket and you can't get it off your screen until you either tell me to work with somebody else or tell me you're working with that other person and then create the the next leg of the chain. And so that one step has removed a lot of a, a lot of work around. Now people complain that they can't, you know, people that initially start using the ticket system say, well, how do I forward this ticket to someone else? Well, you can't. And so that that's one of those things where when you build software, you almost have to decide: is it uh, is it something you want to? Is it a, is it too many features a, a big problem? And you know, usually, you know, in high 
utilization software, software that's very cycles a lot of you know time. Simplicity is the way to go, and uh, and often not letting people do things. So they so the user creates a ticket, or the the person creates a ticket for the other person, and they they work it back and forth until it's done. And we create different views for different groups, so certain project managers can see uh, certain sets of people's tickets between each other, third parties, and uh, and create tickets for so on and so forth. And we. We effectively know what everybody's working on with the ticket system. I have a screen in front of me right now where I can see every single task, a simple subject line about what it is that someone's doing, asked for by whom and given to whom, and what their progress is on it, and uh, and just quickly scan down and see that everyone's got something to do. And I know exactly what everybody's working on, and that one thing allows multiple levels of people in the company, not levels, but multiple groups of people in a company to see what is going on. Because a lot of people from corporate, from a corporate environment come to work with us, and you know, we don't, we don't much hire that, that group anymore, but they, they come to work with us and they get, uh, they get the immediate thing of, well, I don't know what is going on. And that's a, an excuse I cannot stand. And so, you know, we basically, anyone that's kind of Working has been working with us and kind of doesn't have a history of working a certain way where they have meetings every day and 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 certain you know conference calls and so on and so forth. They kind of take right to our our process, and we use Skype or any instant messenger aim or whatever for you know immediate back and forth. And so between the ticket system and uh, instant messenger, that's eighty to ninety percent of our interaction as a team. Uh, we rarely call each other. And we effectively get everything done that way. And I try to get um, as, you know, I try to run it on the development side, and that's really the core competency of our business is to develop software to run business processes. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we effectively want to get as many project managers out and away from the developers as possible. The only reason we would use a project manager is to separate sales and marketing from development and to make sure that, because obviously sales and marketing wants everything and development wants to do nothing. And so we'll do it, but it doesn't know what's important uh, per se. And so, you know, that's the only real reason why you need project management. We don't, uh, we don't prefer to hire developers that, uh, you know, that, that need that sort of support in there because it's, it's a business environment where the rest of the developers are kind of, a lot of them are small business. Used to be small business owners, or used to do things on their own and understand, you know, like what's important and what's not. And so that that basic understanding is something that you kind of have to train someone over a certain period of time. So between sending links back and forth, and you know, remote desktop, and uh, you know, some of the other obvious tools that developers use, we get pretty much everything done. And uh, what we did. Um, sure. of, of, of your team of developers, how many are U.S. based and how many are international? Um, are your overall team, the 40 people? We're, we're, uh, I think we're only one international, I think. But we're all over the U.S., so we got, you know, Texas, a few couple, and we used to have a couple in California, New York, uh, East Coast, uh, Tennessee, and some in Florida. So we're all we're all over, all over the so U.S. you're not working with cheap... Uh, Polish and Ukrainian developers. You're, you're, you're working with fairly, fairly solid U.S. Well, we, we tried. We tried that. Um, we tried the, uh, you know, the outsourced model. Um, run into the same issue um, where we're in, kind of in the quality game. I prefer to build the thing the right way the first time and pay twice as much than to build it for 15 bucks an hour but have to build it seven times. Um, I'm a developer uh, as well, so I... I can look at a piece of code and and know know what I you know know what what it is. I, I know what quality of work is being done, and and I have a very very good understanding of that. So basically, it's not to say that every every program in India can't program. It's just that it's a little bit harder. Um, and in fact, with the world flattening, I think that a lot of the good programmers in India are getting paid probably what they would get paid here in the U.S. because of remote. You know, because of remote uh, hiring and things like that. So, you know, no, we're not using, um, and, and you know, any cost-saving measures there. We tried; it didn't work. Okay. Um, next question, then, when you talk about tasks going back and forth, um, how small can a task get, and how big can the task get? I always try to explain to everyone that a task should never exceed four hours. 
if it's more than four hours, it's too big. So, you know, and obviously I'm probably the biggest defender of that rule, but, you know, the task could be buildvoip.com. But obviously that is useless. So what you need to do is you need to chew down the task to either a 10-minute thing or an hour thing or a three-hour thing or maybe a day thing. But you don't really want to, you know, a task may take a, a month to complete because you're waiting on third parties or you need to, you know, there's certain things that you just don't have access to or whatever. But you don't want to issue a task so big. And, and obviously there's obvious reasons for that because if you create a task that takes three days and the person comes back in three days and says, I'm done, and then you look at it and you say, this isn't what I wanted. So you lost three days. So it's far better to break it down and make sure you see the steps of the process going through. And that way you have communal buy-in. You have multiple people seeing what's progressing more regularly. Your mind is, you're having shorter, more frequent meetings per se, even though you're not talking with each other because you're kind of seeing each other's work and you're more frequently seeing that. So you can kind of stop the car from going in the wrong direction quicker. There's other reasons for that too, but that's one of the main ones. And so then to build on that, um, do you have do you have team members send out things like daily progress reports via email, or, or uh, is everybody monitoring your dashboard so that's how they can see what's going on on a daily? We we waste no time with uh, progress reports. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I apologize. Go ahead. Um, well, the, the deeper question is, um, how do you know that all of your guys are actually productive all the time? The there's two um, the the two questions you asked. One is the first one is we we absolutely waste no time with progress reports. We get a couple of people every now and then that that say, oh, you know, here's what I've been working on, and give us a list of things. Um, unless I get a feel that we're not getting what we need to get done, then I won't ask for that. Um, it's more of an honor system, and I I can watch in real time kind of the screens as they go through and the tickets as they're getting completed. Like I told you, the tickets are five minutes to four hours. So that gives you an idea of how many tickets a week someone should get done. And so in a couple of clicks, you can look at what someone's done in a week and never even like have to get the sales pitch from them. Because obviously anyone can produce a report that says they worked all week and tell you what they did. But someone that knows has to look at it and say that's how long it should have taken and good job. So you have to have some knowledge of... You know, you have to have someone that you can trust that, which happens to be uh, knowledgeable in programming or whatever task it, it may be, to set a metric on what needs to get done in a certain period of time. And a lot of that is based on, it's kind of like back to the call center. If, the, if people believe in what you're trying to get done and trying to do, then they're going to be more effective for you in several ways. And one of them, obviously, is to make sure that they're they're getting their work done. So... You know, and, and you know, it's just like anything else. You may have someone that does in 25 to 30 hours in a week what five other people can't do, and so that still may be enough for you to be happy with that person. So you kind of have to just make that decision as you go. But at least you can see what's going on. So you can, of your 40 guys, you can go in with a couple of clicks into looking what they've done over the last week or two and get a feel. Yeah, much like a, much like an ODesk, we can probably see, you know, effectively what's going on. Um, a lot of it is not just the technology, but the process that everybody understands how to how to make the how to make the requests on the tasks and and what's important and what's not. You know, and I always try to explain to any of the project management that that happens. The goal is to try to do 50% of the stuff that's going to stick. I said if you can get programming to do 100 things and in a year from now 50 of them are still in use and effectively producing money for the company and producing utility for the company then you did good so it's really a function of you know there, there's there's several functions one of the one of the ones that I'm bringing up now is making sure that the programmers don't get things that they don't need to be doing because they'll do anything so it's really not a function of are you working can you work harder and you know, work more and why aren't you working? Those sorts of things aren't really as relevant as, you know, it's kind of like uh, looking at any, like anyone that looks at Facebook and goes, wow, this is pr- pretty simple. And it is. And it's because they, they pick the right thing to do. And that's why they're effective. It's not because they did a lot, per se. We're not running a... Uh, do, I mean, what happens if you bring in a brand new 21-year-old marketing guy from Alabama who's, who's going to change the world with his marketing ideas and he joins the team? And then start um, putting a lot of uh, jobs for your developers in, in their in their job queues. How, how does that work? You mean if he says I need to build this product and this product and this product? 
yeah, he comes out with all of these things. They're all lots of four-hour jobs. Well, that, and that's that's why I hire developers that um, that have a, a fairly decent know-how. Like, for example, often our project manager will assign a developer something, and the developer will say, "We have six customers that use this product. Get rid of this ticket. It's cheaper for us to lose those customers than it is for me to spend three days fixing it." So you have to have a team of people that all understand what's relevant. Um, that is the only real way I've been able to find what's effective. Now you you, you can build it where you have different, you know, checks and balances. But we're a small enough company where if that were to happen and a lot of bad direction were to come of it, then, you know, we would all see it because we all kind of watch what everyone's doing, like I said originally. 